0: Narratives in MMA are so important because when they get picked up, when they catch on with fans, it's nearly impossible to change that perception even if it's entirely untrue. When something gets repeated enough by enough influential people, it just becomes common MMA knowledge regardless of its validity, regurgitated by many as fact without really giving it any thought. But every once in a while, a fighter or fight will so drastically and so entirely destroy this line of thinking with a singular performance or moment that the idea is completely shattered and whatever fallacious Belief that was going around becomes instantly invalidated. So today we're gonna talk about some of those awesome moments. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and these are 10 false narratives in MMA debunked in dramatic fashion. Number 10, all Nganu has is power. There's really nothing more awe-inspiring in combat sports than a powerful striker. We can see all the amazing groundwork, incredibly clean and crisp striking, relentless takedowns and pressure, but at the end of the day, nothing makes our jaws drop quite like a fighter who can hit someone once and put them in instant shutdown mode, no 15 minute sleep timer. Francis Ngannou is the living embodiment of that power, truly terrifying in an almost Lovecraftian way. That said, because of this incredible trait, many mistakenly took Ngannou for a lesser fighter, otherwise. He wasn't anything but his power to so many fans, and that narrative was an easy one to follow if you were so inclined. He came into the main event picture knocking heads off on his way to Stipe Miocic at UFC 220, and when the power didn't work in his first title challenge, he got taken to wrestling school by Cleveland's finest for 25 minutes. It was there that fans started to think, oh, okay, so you're in trouble if he connects, but otherwise he has no other way to win a fight or even manage a bout. Then he had the Frozen fight with Derek Lewis that we do not talk about. From there, it was first round murder town until he got his second shot at Steve. And so many assumed that Francis was still that one trick power pony. But a very methodical and strategically minded Nganu waited for the right moments and put the champion out. Then he really dispelled the narrative when he beat former teammate Cyril Gon, who was considered by most going in far more competent all around. Francis grappled the shit out of him to a decision. Uh oh, Happy's learned to putt, and Nganu shattered the idea that he was just power and nothing more. Number 9. GSP doesn't have it anymore. It's hard to tell at times if Dana White is some kind of genius who knows. Knows how to pull every fighter's strings or if he just says whatever the fuck comes to mind in the moment about a particular topic and hopes for the best. In August of 2016, George St. Pierre, who famously bounced after his final welterweight title defense at UFC 167 in late 2013, announced that he would be entering the USADA testing pool because he was going to come back to the sport after a three-year layoff. Oh my god, he's back again, brothers, sisters, everybody sing. Dana White, he wasn't buying it. During an interview on SportsCenter that's been scrubbed from the internet in its entirety, DFW let it be known that he was pretty scared. Skeptical saying, GSP's been saying he's gonna come back for a couple years now, and listen, he hasn't fought in three, going on four years I think, I just don't think GSP has that desire and that drive in him anymore. I honestly don't believe it. Back to my original point on this entry, was this some sort of Dana White Jedi mind trick attempt at motivating GSP, or was he really just sick of it at that point, and didn't believe the words coming out of St. Pierre's mouth? Whatever the case, White's statement was proven super duper wrong in dramatic fashion, when GSP returned at UFC 217 over a year later, up a weight class to defeat Beat Michael Bisping, win another world title, and then bounce again because of a nasty bout of colitis. But point proven, the drive and desire were still there. Number 8. Fans Don't Like Smaller Fighters When Demetrius Johnson went on his historic and record-breaking run as flyweight champion starting in 2012 all the way through to 2018, the narrative was almost always the same from fans commenting on Mighty Mouse's popularity, or rather lack thereof. They would say, well sure, he's very talented, we won't deny that. But at the end of the day, fans just don't like smaller fighters. They don't have the knockout power. They can't entertain us like the other divisions with finishes. It's just a bunch of really fast, small guys who are very technically sound, having boring fights that we don't care about. Bring on the big old bulldozer boys who are gonna knock each other into next week. Something like that. And while DJ didn't connect with the larger MMA audience, there are certainly plenty of other factors that played into that that have nothing to do with this idea that small guys are no fun. And it's simply not true. Sure, 125 was in dire straits for a while, but if fans don't like the smaller fighters, explain Henry Cejudo's presence in the sport. T J Dillashaw, once below loved then hated, mostly hated now, but he's got some fans back. He was a big deal, though, and fans loved his fights with Cody. Fans loved Cody's fights with Cruz. Weight absolutely counts as small guys, by the way. So does Featherweight, but we'll leave Conor out of this. Sugar Sean O'Malley, massively popular with the kids on TikTok these days. The smaller weight classes have been thriving as of late, with some of the best and biggest drama in the sport playing out at 125 and 135 pounds. The most dramatic example being the incredible trilogy between Brandon Moreno and Davison Invigaret. And you know why? Because it's fucking awesome. Just like those smaller weight classes. Number seven, the UFC always has the best fighters. How many times has Dana White or the fans or everybody in general said that the UFC has the greatest fighters period in the world? Sure, there are other great promotions out there, but not only will they never ever even come close to surpassing the popularity of the UFC, their talent just isn't up to the challenge when it comes to the best of the best from the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Except all those times that that's been proven completely wrong. Like when Dana sent Chuck Liddell to pride show the world that the best 205ers were stateside with Zufa, only for the Iceman to get iced by Rampage at Pride Final Conflict 2003. Page would eventually come to the UFC himself and take Chuck's light heavyweight belt. Oh, how about that time Benson Henderson left the UFC and went to Bellator, only to lose his debut title fight against Andre Koroshkov, and then his next title challenge against Michael Chandler. Speaking of Iron Mike, remember when he came to the UFC from Bellator and Murder Death killed Dan Hooker? Or when Mighty Mouse and Eddie Alvarez headed over to one? DJ lost in his first flyweight title challenge, and Eddie got TKO'd in his debut with the promotion. Sure, the UFC by and large does have the best fighters in the world, there's no question there. But many a time now in dramatic fashion, a fighter from that realm has exited into another promotion where everyone assumed they would thrive, and got some cold hard reality that there are killers everywhere and they're coming for you. Number 6. WMMA just isn't exciting. We've been hearing it since Ronda Rousey blew up the scene in 2013 and women's divisions started filling out in the UFC. These fights are boring, they can't finish. There's no interesting competition. There's no stars besides Ronda. Matt Brown infamously said if we're going to have to watch women fight, can't they at least be topless? Hey man, that's not cool. It's a stigma that held for a pretty long time despite the actual facts. So let me throw some cold hard ones at ya. Men's bantamweight has an all-time finish rate of 48%. Their female counterparts only 6% less at 42 all-time, which is tied with men's flyweight. And again, the women's equivalent is only 3% less. So female fighters are finishing at roughly the same rate as their male counterparts of the same weight. I didn't bother doing the math on 145 since there's been like six fighters there ever. Of the 313 fight of the night bonuses given out since women entered the UFC, fights between female talent have a accounted for 10% of those bonuses, which may not sound like a lot, but when you consider they account for about 10% of the roster, they're performing pretty damn well relative to the size of their divisions. Speaking of which, in our breakdown of the UFC's best divisions from last August, Strawweight came in fifth overall, as it's been a buzzsaw as of late, bringing me to our dramatic fashion debunking that the women's fights are boring, and that is of course the ridiculously awesome 115-pound title fight between Zhang Wei Li and and Janjacek at UFC 248. It is without question the greatest fight any of the women's divisions has ever seen, and it's one of the greatest fights in UFC history, period. Absolutely destined for the Hall of Fame. It was even fight of the year that year. An absolute war for the ages, and to me, the dramatic death of this idea that these divisions are somehow not worth your time. Number 5. Charles Oliveira is a journeyman quitter. Wow, did this one turn out to be way more relevant than any of us could have imagined. There weren't a lot of people thinking about Charles Oliveira really at all when he returned to Lightweight in 2017 after 17 bouts in the UFC. he just lost three of his last four, he'd missed weight four times at 145, he was a talented submission artist but largely seen as just another journeyman, a guy who just couldn't put it together, mid-card for life, a quitter as Justin Gaethje called him. Well, regardless of having his title taken away because of yet another weight miss, he still proved everyone wrong in very dramatic fashion when he went on a 10-fight run out of seemingly nowhere starting in 2018 that saw eight performance bonuses, nine finishes, he beat Tony Ferguson, Michael Chandler, and Dustin Poirier all back-to-back, earning the vacant lightweight title in the process, and as for quitting, he certainly didn't do so against Chandler when he was all but finished at the end of the first, regrouping and getting a TKO stoppage 19 seconds into round two. If that's not dramatically proving that you're not a quitter, that you're not some mid-card journeyman lifer never was, I don't know what he could have done more besides beat Habib, who had already retired at that point. Regardless of how you feel about UFC 274, you can't deny that Charlie Olives absolutely sealed his place in MMA history and proved everybody who doubted him wrong. Number four, boring Marty is boring. We love to immediately assess new champions and what their reign will be like. Sometimes we completely overestimate them, the Machida era has begun. Other times we're massively disappointed, believing we're in for a boring and awful title reign, like many a fan thought with Kamaru Usman. He was just boring. All he did was grapple, we were in for years of him just leaning on people, a boring nothing title reign that would bore us all to sleep with boring fights clenched up against the cage, foot stomps and pillow hands, and to be fair to the fans that felt that way, Usman's first first 10 UFC fights saw eight decisions, including his lackluster title victory over Tyron Woodley, where he absolutely dominated, but got booed mercilessly for all the grappling, and Mark Goddard famously warned him after a stand-up, listen to me, Kamaru, it's a fight. It also didn't help that right behind Usman was three of the sport's biggest and most prolific trash talkers, Ben Askren, Colby Covington, and Jorge Masvidal, constantly feeding the narrative that the new champ was not one of the cool kids. He was boring, he was a crotch sniffer, he was fake newsman, all that stuff. Then Usman had an all-time classic with Covington, five rounds of just straight up throwing from the hip, he broke the dude's jaw. His next win was back to what people expected against Masvidal, but then he TKO'd Gilbert Burns after taking his best shot, and in the rematch with Jorge, absolutely blasted game bread into the dark world, followed by another banger with Covington. The guy's been one of the most exciting champions in the sport at current, with the most interesting rivalries, and he's delivered over and over now. He's not just a boring wrestler, he's got those hands, willing to throw down, the narrative is largely dead now, but that's because he squashed it so damn hard after winning that title. Number three, the stats tell the tale of the fight. If you follow this channel for any amount of time now, you know that I love me some numbers and I love me some stats. I can't get enough of them. If I could just stare at spreadsheets all day and input data about which fighters were victorious after dancing during their walkouts, I would absolutely do that. But as much as I love the numbers, they're always open to interpretation. They're not absolute, they're not the end all be all, as much as many of us would like to be the case. One of the stats the UFC loves to show when a fight goes the distance is the total strikes landed, as if that accumulation factors into the individual judging of each round. What good is the total if you don't know what was thrown and landed round to round? And even that doesn't always tell the tale. The most incredible example ever just recently happened, when Rob Font took on Marlon Vera at the UFC's 100th ESPN show. In a fight that only saw a single takedown and two attempts, both by Font, as well as less than three minutes of control time total, you would think that these striking totals would Absolutely tell the tale. Rob outstruck Vera in all five rounds, 273 to 167 total. In fact, Font set six different all time UFC bantamweight records in that fight strikes landed and thrown, significant strikes landed and thrown, distance strikes landed, and significant head strikes. Six separate all time records. And when the cards came up, he rightly lost. Why? Because those shots weren't doing what Vera's were namely, three knockdowns, a near finish or two, and a face turned into ground beef. So remember, kids, sometimes the numbers do lie. Number two, the Covington Masvidal beef is fake. Oh <laughs> sweet, sweet validation! Oh yeah, this whole entry is just gonna be me gloating about the fact that I was right and you were wrong. If you disagreed with me, that is. I'm just kidding, but seriously, I was right. In the lead up to UFC 272, we did a video about whether or not the beef between Colby Covington and Jorge Masvidal was real. Now, this wasn't a concept we were speculating on out of thin air. There was a lot of discussion in the MMA community around that time questioning its validity. After all, the two were thick as thieves for a long time as training partners and besties at American Top Team, and then Dan Lambert, the owner, he loved him a good wrestling angle, it all felt somewhat plausible that it could be fake. But when you took a deep dive as we did for the video, it became pretty apparent that this thing had gone beyond any kind of pretend troubles and was a deep genuine conflict. That of course didn't stop plenty from commenting after the video that, oh you guys are such suckers, they're clearly faking it, wow I can't believe you really fell for that, what a bunch of marks. Then 272 came and went, with a whole bunch of not appearing to squash a damn thing, but then in the most dramatic fashion possible, Masvidal would have allegedly assault Covington a few weeks after the fight in Miami, chipping a tooth, breaking a watch that's value is in question, and according to Colby, causing brain damage. Masvidal was charged with battery, among other things. This is an ongoing legal matter, but one thing is for sure, they're really playing the long con here. I mean, getting arrested for your fake beef, that's commitment. I'm such a mark for thinking it was real. I'm such a sheep, you know? All right, I'm done being a jerk. Number one, Anderson Silva's weakness. I love this one because I was one of those people who thought This and I got my ass sat down by the spider. So it's 2009, and Anderson Silva has had back-to-back title defenses that just sucked. They sucked. He performed well enough, he got the wins, but his victories over Patrick Cote and Talos Latis were just lackluster. And by this time, he's nine fights into the UFC, he's had that belt for over three years, and he's got that unbeatable aura. So naturally, all those contrarian fans, myself included, started thinking, man, if somebody could just take the fight to Silva, I mean, really pressure him, he would crumble. Everybody's so scared to engage with him, and they come in weak. Somebody just needs to charge in, and let's see if he can dance around that. Enter Forrest Griffin. The definition of charging forward. I was so jacked when that fight got announced. I thought this is it. Sure, Silva is a better talent, but he's never fought a dog like Griffin. Well, you all know how it goes. Talk about dramatic fashion. Absolute decimation on a scale and in a manner that didn't seem humanly possible before that date. Not only did the pressure not work, it seemed to make Silva even better. It's the godlike performance I've ever seen. Then the Damien Maya fight happens. Another awful title defense. Maya cannot engage. Everybody's back on that somebody-needs-to-pressure-him-bandwagon. Enter Chael Sonnen, the fucking master of pressure wrestling and pace at middleweight at the time. Now, this actually worked. In fact, Sonnen was on his way to an easy win on the scorecards, when that dramatic fashion reared its ugly head again, and caught Chael in a triangle armbar with less than two minutes left in the fight. Sure, it was a close call, but he proved again that in his Prime, nothing was ever going to beat Anderson Silva. I'm Bailey from M-Round and yes, we are finally here in our brand new office. Let's go check it out. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to our MMA challenge of the week. Today, I'm joined by the greatest referee in the world, Mr. Mark Goddard. I would punch him straight in the back of the fucking head. That's right, a brand new channel with brand new content. Welcome to Fight Front, the home of personality-driven MMA. Today it's an MMA challenge where I take the worst rated UFC character in UFC Undisputed 3 all the way to the heavyweight championship of the world. And I'm reacting to Colin McGregor. Make sure you scroll on down and hit subscribe because you do not want to miss all the new content coming your way on this brand new channel. And hey, it's me, Tommy Toehold, and I'm rolling around on a damn monitor. Huge shout out to Max Randall for editing this video together. Follow him on Twitter at Max Randall. A big, big thank you to Ben Rosette, who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro. Check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his Instagram and Twitter page at Ben Rosette. Thanks for watching, please give us a like and subscribe, we've got three new videos or more for you every single week. Let us know what you thought of the video in the comments below, follow On Point MMA on Twitter, and have yourself a wonderful day.